This is not some foreign place. This isn't a Netflix documentary of somewhere that you can watch and be like, that'll never happen to me. It could happen to you. If you get popped with a DUI, you could die in your local jail. Wow. If George Floyd had crossed the threshold of his jail, we would have never known what happened to him. We wouldn't know his name. People quick to count you out, man, but just so strict on counting you in, you know? One thing about old Floyd, man, I love the world. I ain't putting on, ask anybody that know me, then they know me. You know, cause like, people be acting like they be scared to embrace God, worrying about what the next man gonna say and all that. Man, you better get down. I love you, man, Big Floyd. Welcome to Official Ignorance, the Death in Custody podcast, hosted by Dr. Roger Mitchell Jr. and Professor Jay Aronson. You are now listening to the sounds of Official Ignorance. Hey, Jay, we're back. Official Ignorance, the Death in Custody podcast. So good to see you, man. You look good today, man. Did you get some rest last night? No. Every once in a while, I feel the need to shave. I'm actually going to do a prison visit today uh, at SCI Fayette with the Pennsylvania Prison Society, and I, I feel like I need to not look like I uh, rolled out of bed. So that's the explanation. No, Sorry, I no. don't shave more often. It's always good to see you, oh, my brother. You know, I'm happy that we're here. But we have some really, really important guests. Much of our book is about how the government doesn't collect data and the importance of activists and advocates, uh, but no less important are journalists, right? And so we have some really important guests with us today. Tell us a little bit about them. I could spend hours and hours uh, introducing these two, but I think I'm just going to keep it brief and they yeah. can add whatever they want. Uh, that we have two incredible guests today people who I've learned a tremendous amount from, particularly in my home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, we have Brittany Haler, who is a journalist and uh, actually a creative nonfiction writer who fell into reporting on deaths in custody, uh, not intentionally. She is the director of the Pittsburgh Institute for Nonprofit Journalism, um, which is focused primarily on issues uh, having to do with the carceral system. She also teaches writing at University of Pittsburgh. And if there's one person who I think we can uh, attribute the increased attention to the deaths that are happening in my local jail, the Allegheny County Jail, to, it is absolutely Brittany. Without Brittany's work, we wouldn't even know about some of the people who have died, uh, wow. either in the jail or as a result of their, their time in the jail. Um, and we also have Josh Vaughn, who has had a long career in journalism. He now works for uh, an outfit called Penn Live, which is part of the Patriot News, Harrisburg newspaper. He has been focused on the issue of deaths in custody in prisons around the state. Um, and he is one of the people who has really tried to understand what's happened to death in custody reporting data since uh, the Death in Custody Reporting Act um, has, has not been <laughs> enforced and has not been followed. He's shown that a lot of the deaths that have occurred in jails around the state um, are unknown to anyone other than the families and the, the administrators of the jail um, and has done some great work on that. And as he and Brittany will discuss, they, they together uh, have now gotten a grant from the Pulitzer Center to actually build a database of deaths in jails in Pennsylvania. So two journalists who do this because they care 
are doing the work that our government should be doing. And I'm really excited to talk to both of them. I've become friends with them over the past couple of years. Um, I've learned a tremendous amount and, and I collaborate with them as well. Uh, so, so I'm excited for this conversation. No, I, I'm excited too. Why don't we bring them in? Absolutely. Uh, Let's bring them in. Hey, uh, hey, Brittany. Hey, Josh. It's good to see you. You're smiling. It's early in the morning. Uh, it's it's sometimes hard to smile with the work that you do and the work that we do. Um, but it's great to see you. I want to hear your voices. It's good to see you guys, too. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Listen, can we start with Brittany? Tell us a little bit about how you got interested and engaged in the issue. I know that Jay kind of gave a little bit about it, but tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to this space. Um, there's like a short answer and a long answer, <laughs> but Jay alluded to my writing background. I moved to Pittsburgh to pursue a master's in creative writing. Um, and at Chatham University, uh, I joined the Words Without Walls program, which was uh, teaching poetry and nonfiction to uh, the incarcerated at the Allegheny County Jail. So that was my first, that's like I entered the jail, I worked in the jail, I taught um, students who were the same age as my undergraduate students. So I had, you know, kids that were 19 on campus, and then I had kids that were 19, 20 years old in the jail at the same time. Um, and spoiler alert, my writers were better in the jail than they were <laughs> on mm. campus most of the time. So that was my first, like, you know, uh, crossing that threshold into this kind of space. And as I was doing it, my students started telling me about solitary confinement and inappropriate things happening to them in the showers. And uh, I started to get angry <laughs> and I, and my anger response was to figure out a way to work in the system that wasn't just teaching. I, I felt that I, I wanted to tell the story outside of the jail versus work inside the jail. Um, so I started reporting for a place called Public Source, and I did uh, feature stories about the incarcerated for a while. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, there was a two or three sentence long story in the Post-Gazette about Daniel Pastrick, who was a man in his 60s who had died in the jail. And I was a little bit naive in that it didn't occur to me that my students could have died. Like mm. I, that was like this big moment, it, you know, during the pandemic when we're all locked in our homes and you're thinking about your students, you're thinking about all these different people. And, and I didn't really understand that their lives were at risk in that way. Wow. And so I wanted to know what happened to him. And I started asking questions and the county didn't want to answer those questions. So in the due diligence of a reporter, I just filed for the autopsy. Um, but I am from Maryland where you can get an autopsy just by going down to a courthouse. So I really didn't think that it was going to turn into a three-year battle, which it has turned into. Um, the state court just ordered Allegheny County to grant us the autopsy for Mr. Pastrick, uh, which has now set precedent. And I'm getting emails from other journalists that the OOR is granting them autopsies now because of our case, which is Allegheny v. Haler. Uh, I tried to still pay for Mr. Pastrick's autopsy. Like last week, they told me the coroner or the medical examiner is on vacation. 
<laughs> um, and I can't write the check still. So I don't know when that's going to happen, but they still have like 16-ish days to appeal. Uh, that's a long-winded answer. I'm sorry, but that is how I got here uh, in those three years of trying to pursue Mr. Pastrick's autopsy. I uncovered more deaths at the jail and reported those deaths. And we are now at a 19 death count since 2020, just for the Allegheny County Jail. There's so many threads that we can pull on that. Um, and I'm, I want to pull them, but I want to uh, let our listeners meet Josh and then Jay and I are going to pull on these threads because um, just in what you said, uh, there's so much rich work and progress that's made has been made just in a short amount of time of of someone focusing in on the importance of this work. Josh, tell us a little bit about how you got here. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. So, I mean, just to be clear, Brit- Brittany's the rock star. I- I'm just just kind of <laughs> riding her coattails. Um, so- opposite. I feel opposite. <laughs> Josh, Josh plays bass. He's the bass. He's the bass player in the band. I'm so. the bass player. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> I. So I mean, I've I've been in news since I was 19. Uh, I mean, I, I started in in TV and production, um, and and have just kind of been been working my way up. I decided to change over to print because that seemed like the up and coming lucrative industry to get into whenever I was 27 years old. Um, and, and really just kind of, I was a general assignment reporter and then I, I wish I had a better story as to why I got onto the, the criminal justice and, and, and all those kinds of issues, but it really just was uh, interesting uh, to start off with. And then it became one of those things where you start to realize how bad we do so many different things in criminal justice, how many of the things that we, we say work don't actually work, um, how much money we spend on the system, and just the, the harm it does to people. Um, and I found that there's just so many people, I mean, we're, we're always supposed to be, you know, telling the story of the people who can't tell their story. And I mean, I, I don't think there is a beat in reporting that, that you don't have more of those people because prisons and jails are just the place that we, we go to hide people away from society and kind of forget about them. Um, so it really kind of got into that more, more focused on the, the deaths in custody. I had started collecting the deaths and custody reports during COVID to get a better understanding of who was dying in, uh, at that point, the state prisons. I was working for an outlet called The Appeal. It's a nonprofit online news publication about criminal justice, criminal justice reform. Um, so I started collecting so we could, we could have an understanding of who was dying in our prisons um, from COVID at that point. And really had, I had been collecting every quarter the deaths and custody reports. And then uh, the BJS report, the final, at this point, the, the final report the BJS intends to put out about deaths in custody um, came out in 2021, whenever I was at, when I started at uh, Penn Live. And I noticed that in Pennsylvania, it was generally around 50 to 60 people were dying in county jails. Uh, in the state every year. And I know, and I remember when I looked back at my deaths and custody reports that I had from uh, collecting them from the state and from the federal government, it was only like 20 in 2020, which just, there was no way in my mind that that was actually accurate. 
Um, so that piqued my interest, and I, and I got looking into that um, for that story, and it, it really just turned into that once you transition from BJS to BJA, collecting the data, which obviously I, we can talk about in more detail, but I mean, counties just stopped reporting deaths, and there, there was no enforcement mechanism. Uh, we have, there's no enforcement mechanism on the state level. Um, and there just was a, an absolute frustration uh, on my end to, to see how jails were hiding deaths or getting away with not reporting deaths or that, that there just was, that we had passed these laws saying it's important to collect this data, but made no effort to have an enforcement mechanism to make sure that this stuff is actually collected. Uh, and then that turned into focusing on my local jail as well, which is a, a, a giant mess in and of itself. Um, we're a smaller jail in Dolphin County, but we've had, I think, 19 deaths since the beginning of 2019. So roughly the same as Allegheny County when you add one extra year in when we have about, I think it's about half the population, um, daily population in our jail and just dying under some kind of obscene circumstances without medical care. I, I know Roger and I had spoken before about one man who was classified as a medical incident that seems to be pretty clearly a homicide by guards uh, in the jail. And it's just, it does not seem to be getting better in there. So that's been a, a huge focus of my work um, since coming to Penn Live over the last year and a half. Thank you so much, both of you. As Roger said, there are so many threads. And if I feel like we could just do a, a podcast series on kind of pulling apart all the things that you said in your in your introductions, but uh, we don't have that kind of time. I, I do have one really basic question for both of you, though, um, and that's it, it's partly why you care, but it's also why should the general public care about what happens behind the walls and bars of our jails in the state of Pennsylvania or in the country? What, why should we care? Uh, I'll start. I think um, why I care and why other people should care is maybe the same. I don't know. <laughs> I think on a basic level, you know, these are human beings. I mean, that we should care about our fellow man. We should be neighborly. Um, and, and this isn't to say that someone who has been convicted of maybe a violent crime sh should, uh, you know, no one should die in custody and not have that the dignity of death and not have their information shared. I don't want to qualify that anyway, but in Pennsylvania in particular, we have shut down every mental institution in the state. You know, we have an opioid crisis that's happening. Um, in Pittsburgh, we're closing our homeless shelter, our major homeless shelters. And where are those people going? They're going to your local jail. So the most vulnerable population in any city is the people coming in and out of a transient place like a jail. Um, many of them are low-level offenders. Many of them just need mental health services or medical services. So these folks who are dying, especially like the tiny data set I have for Pittsburgh, are folks who have a co-occurring mental illness, who are struggling with um, substance use issues, you know. And I think if that same person had died in a nursing home or if a nursing home that had that many deaths in this amount of time, which many of the people would qualify for a nursing home, that nursing home would be shut down. There would be a, a investigation into that facility, but because it's our local jail, there seems to be no real oversight that, you know, there hasn't been an intervention. Um, and that seems pretty wild to me. And then on a transparency level, 
you know, we live in the United States of America. <laughs> I, I, it's it to me, I just couldn't believe how over and over again, our local government, local mm. leaders that you elected, that you can run into at a Eaton Park. <laughs> I don't know if you would run into somebody at an Eaton Park, but like these are people that it's not like some lofty politician like the president or something. It's it's your next door neighbor isn't answering our questions, isn't providing very public documents. Um, so that that um, that makes me incredulous, and and I hate being told no, and um, that's part of the reason I care is just just the fury <laughs> of of mm -hmm. being told no um, is my answer. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Brittany hits hits a lot of it for me as well. I mean, they're human beings. Um, I, I know you guys can see. I don't know if we can if, if this is going to be a video or, or whatnot, but there's there's photos behind me on my wall. Those are all men and women who had been sentenced to life without parole in Pennsylvania. It was a part of a project that, that, that I did uh, for the appeal. You know, we think about people who are in jails and prisons as breaking them down into to the, their worst moment or simplifying who they are to just this one awful thing, otherizing them to, to be monsters or, or whatnot. And we don't stop and really think about that. They're these truly, they're these three dimensional human beings that they're, they're brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, they're, they're all sorts of things. So whether, whether we care about them as the individual, there are people who care about them on the outside as well. Um, just like you and I, they're human beings who are deserving of that kind of dignity and being treated with dignity and respect. Um, and I think just fundamentally, these are policies and these are things that are happening to them in our name. I mean, it's our government who is carrying out these actions. It is our government who is that is deciding, you know, what policies to put in place. It's our government that's deciding not to release the information when someone dies or or to to try to hide it when someone dies or when they make a mistake that harms someone. Like that's happening in in our names. We're the ones paying for it. The government is us. It it's it's not just some third party entity that is doing things and we have no control over. And as Brittany said, it's, it's infuriating to me as a, you know, as a human being to see this happen to people, but it's also infuriating to me as just a citizen and person who's part of society to see things being carried out in my name that I don't approve of. And again, we, we can talk about that the person needs to be punished or, or however we want to put it. We can do that in a humane way that does not, does not, inflict additional harm onto another human being rather than, than doing it the way that, that we're doing now um, and just creates more trauma and pain. And when we do make mistakes, we should be, you know, fixing that. I mean, fundamentally on, on the other level is like jails on a, on a local level, jails and criminal justice is one of the most expensive things that we pay for. And it's not like when these things happen, it's, free i mean it's it's very expensive especially if the the person has family on the outside it, dolphin county has spent i think it's 1.9 million dollars in lawsuits over the last three years so if if fundamentally that just them being human beings doesn't get you or that that things are being carried out in your own name the fact that it's going to cost you money to incarcerate people and then it's going to cost you money whenever the county makes a mistake or it does something to inflict additional harm on, on people. Like we should just be wanting to get it right so that, that it's not happening to people 
again, even if it's not that you're caring about them as, as, an, as an individual, it's going to affect your bottom line. It's going to affect your tax dollars. It's going to affect all that stuff. Like when these things happen in jails, it affects everyone. And it, it, we should be upset about it. To piggyback off of that, like even from like just a public health standpoint, think about the data that we could be getting from this population that the jail has and is not sharing. Like, is there a bad batch of heroin in the community? And we have an increase of overdoses happening. That recent release from the jail, people coming into intake, they know that. They know that information and they're not sharing it with the community because they're afraid of getting in trouble or they have this mentality that, you know, safety and protection as, you know, or whatever excuse they come up with. I just think even from like a, they have, again, this population that is so vulnerable. They have records of that population. They feed that population. They know that population. I mean, they have a relationship with this population. If that population is dying for whatever reason, let us know so that we can then like come up with a plan. <laughs> like even on a, just a basic like safety measure issue, why not communicate with the Department of Health or communicate with the community? Hey, this thing is happening. It's like they're afraid on some level of I just basic transparency. I don't know. I guess litigation. I don't know. You know, it's the one thing you said, uh, Brittany, that that really struck a chord with me is this notion that you can run into these legislators, run into mm -hmm. these leaders um, at the local, you know, yeah. restaurant and it's decisions or that are being made or not being made in order to provide transparency towards the death and the treatment of our community that is that is incarcerated and and Josh you know this othering of community right and so um the notion that we shouldn't even be using the term they mm. we should be using the term we i mean mm. we are incarcerated we are behind bars you know, it is our family and fathers and mothers and sisters and yeah. cousins um, to to your point. Right. And Josh, you you talk in previous conversations in some of your your critique of the system. You describe jails as being black boxes. And I think you alluded to both of you alluded to uh, to the black box. But further, Josh, further give us an idea of what you mean by the term black box and, and the carceral system being such. Yeah. So, I mean, the jails and prisons and, and the, the, the carceral system, when I say it's a, it's a black box, it, it's just opaque. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to get information out. It, it's hard to get in to see what's happening. Generally, the only information that we get out of jails is information that the counties want to provide uh i mean when we talk about uh ishmael thompson who is is the gentleman who uh died in the jail that they, they call it a medical emergency i mean the only information we had on him for i mean it was over a year the only information we had on him was, was a press release from the county saying this person was brought in shortly after he was brought in he had a medical emergency and then died a few days later at the hospital I mean, it wasn't until we really dug in and luckily got some use of force reports, which they released and then 
they got a, a report from the Office of Open Records saying they don't have to release it. So they, their actual quote to me when I went back for more use of force reports was, we were erring on the side of transparency and now we're, we're not. Um, so I, we can't get those reports anymore. But once we got those reports, we were able to see that, that he was pepper sprayed. He was in the jail for close to 10 hours. I've been checked out at the hospital. He was not on his toxicology came back clean from the hospital. He, I mean, he clearly had some mental health issues that, that were going on, but otherwise was healthy. Um, and he, he dies of a medical emergency. That medical emergency just happened to happen less than 10 minutes after guards pepper sprayed him, stuck a spit hole on his head and then forced him into a restraint chair. None of that made it into any of the, the reports by the county and it's only because we were able to get our, our hands on this and then luckily we're able to get get our hands on uh, the autopsy which at that point was still kind of up in the air whether counties would be willing to turn those over we got our hands on our on the autopsy and then we're able to to get it over uh, to roger and, and and have him take a look at the autopsy but it was the only that's the only way we, we actually knew what had happened to Ishmael before he died if we didn't have that information which now counties don't want to turn over and it's just it's it's very difficult to to get get the information about what actually happened to them um we wouldn't know it would still be they died of a medical emergency in the jail which is I mean maybe we can call it a medical emergency but I mean it, it was a medical emergency induced by guards doing things to him that that there's been no reckoning um for that as well i mean on a fundamental level i'm not even allowed into the dolphin county jail to to visit like i can go and visit people just like the the community i've never been allowed to tour the facility i used to cover a jail in cumberland county which is right across the river from from dolphin county they've allowed me to go in and tour anytime i want while i was just just in touring with we have an intern from penn state and she's working on these issues so I asked them if, if we can come down and tour the jail and they, they showed us around, but like Dolphin County, I can't even get in to see what the facility looks like. And the stories we hear about the facility are, are awful, but they won't even allow us in. And, and their, their argument is just, we're not going to because it's, it's security reasons and we're, we're just not going to allow you in. And they on some level don't have to do those things. So there's no real way to compel to get the information out. So, I mean, it's this very, very opaque institution that, that, it, it's very hard to get information out of to know what's truly happening on the inside. Yeah, Josh. One of the one of the things that um, that I've talked to both you and Brittany about, and Brittany, I wanted to get your take on this, um, is just how random the rules seem. And and jails are not only black boxes; they're also local fiefdoms for uh, local politicians, and they've kind of always been this way. That the the criminal legal system has functioned as a um, as a way of keeping order in a location, but also in doling out privileges and doling out contracts and doling out favors. And so can you just tell me a little bit about the, the differences or the vagaries that you found in different, uh, different states that you've lived or worked in and also just different jails in the state? Um, we, just spoke or we're speaking later with Jonah from UCLA. What's jo- Jonah Walters? Is that his last name? Is that or Waters or Walters? Uh, but he question. UCLA is doing a death and custody database as well. They did an analysis of um, Los Angeles County Jail 
and they are expanding that and they they're doing some work in Pennsylvania and, and they've been a great ally to us throughout this whole journey. And Jonah told me yesterday that there has been no death in center County ever, no nope, jail nope. death ever. Right. right? Last, Is that wrong? In in the last 10 years. Uh, 10 years. I mean, that, yeah. that that's obviously not true. And I mean, the, the, we, the, the, the story that I wrote on, uh, not, not to jump on top of you. Um, no, but, yeah, I mean, the story that I did on on deaths in custody back in February of last year—that was one of the things that we highlighted. They they had a they had a man who attempted suicide in the jail was found in his cell uh, alive enough that they were able to get him out and move him to another county to a hospital. This happened at about three o'clock in the afternoon on I think July 14th, July 15th at 9 a.m. They gave him a medical furlough. And then at like two o'clock on July 15th, he died in the hospital and they, they argued he was not in, in custody death because he had been released from custody prior to physically dying. But I mean, we're talking less than 24 hours, but yeah, it, in their response to me, it was, they've had no one die in the jail for at least the last five years whenever I talked to them. But yeah, it's, it's a significant amount of time that they, said no one has died here which is clearly not true i mean statistically speaking how is that even possible you know um we just went through a pandemic i don't know but uh and that to answer like the rules or the policies or or who says what and who's allowed to say what or i don't know but but a play out of their playbook is to do these medical furloughs or to release someone while they're on their deathbed to avoid the count. So it's honestly a semantics game on some level. I had family members or actual people who were incarcerated calling me and saying, they medically released this person, this person died. Here's the name, go find them. And then I did, I confirmed that. I found that this person had died, that they were released, I mean, mere hours before dying, not days. Sometimes it was days, but other times it was hours. And the county, uh, stood by that statement like this this does not count as an in custody death and it just seems so patently obvious that they're playing a game like that about someone's death <laughs> and um i know that josh has done reporting where where the doj said actually no it, it still counts as in custody right Did yeah, it, the, yeah. and so um there's an issue of oversight because the county's like you're saying, it's we live in an ad hoc state where they can kind of do their own thing. There isn't a body overlooking all of them, really. And who's overseeing each individual jail is different. Um, in Allegheny County, we have a county executive who doesn't really have anyone above him to tell him what to do. He hasn't been to a jail oversight board meeting. I think he's been once in 10 years or something so that you can't go to those meetings and ask him a question. Um, you have to hope to run into him at Eaton Park. <laughs> like it, it, it's, um, it's perfectly um, dysfunctional and, and it's perfectly patchworked because it's different everywhere you go. So tell us both of you, you know, you're talking now about data and this is extremely important to, to, to our listeners, to the podcast, to the book, um, surrounding data. So in Pennsylvania, uh, you're alluding to it, but what is on the books? Like what, what is surrounding data and 
transparency and reporting death uh, in the carceral system, what's on the books as a legal requirement for, for the state? Yeah, so, I mean, on the, the state level, we have a law that says that counties have to report deaths and then this whole list of what they call extraordinary occurrences which can be anything from you know shackling a, a, a pregnant woman um, to use of force uh, by guards uh, assaults on guards assaults on incarcerated people all that kind of stuff they have to report that to, to the doc there is absolutely no enforcement mechanism though to make sure that 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 information is accurate and it actually the DOC publishes that information on their website every year. Uh, they, they publish the extraordinary occurrence reports with the caveat that they don't check it. They just receive it. They turn around and, and they, they publish it. So there, there's, not, there's no check for accuracy. And there's actually nothing in the, the law that allows them to, to do it. So like the DOC also does inspections uh, of jails. They are not the level of inspection that, that I would like to see. Uh, it, it's a lot of checking to make sure that the jails have the policies that they, they're supposed to have in place. And they, they do do a tour of the jail. But, I mean, it'd be nice to see more teeth into actually doing inspections to make sure the facility is not horrible. Um, but with, with the inspections, like, there are things that they can do. There, there are some enforcement mechanisms. That they're, they're not huge. Like, they can, they can do another inspection. They can compel them to at least, you know, show them that they are making some of these changes with the reporting of deaths, that's not even part of it. Like it, it, that is carved out in its own little section of that statute where it just says you must report this information and then nothing. Um, now, they are also supposed to report to the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency that that's through for the, the, the federal reporting. They're supposed to report at their deaths in custody every quarter. Um but again, there, there's no enforcement. Anytime I've spoken to BJA about it, in 2020, it was less than half the deaths got reported to the federal government like they were supposed to. And when I talk to BJA about it, it just turns into, well, we're looking into it and we're trying to get better reporting. Um, but at this point, they, the BJA just in general seems allergic to using any of its, its enforcement mechanisms for any of the federal laws that they have for anything criminal justice related. One of the crazy things that's happened uh, since I've been following your work, Brittany and Josh, is that your, the, the, the sunshine or the, the, the flashlight, whatever you want to call it, that you've been shining on this issue has actually caused not, not a massive shift in, uh, in what we know. Um, you know, we don't know everything still, but, but I think that people know that you're looking uh, and and there seems to be a little bit more data uh, being released. And also journalists are now covering this issue. Um, so I, I wanted to thank you for that. Um, I, I wish we could say that you've solved the the problem and and that the, that there's uh, full reporting and that um, deaths aren't occurring. but but we actually at least know what's going on. And I think, you know, I don't know the whole state, but Brittany has kind of changed the conversation about, death in custody in Allegheny County in an amazing way. Um, so I wanted to just acknowledge that, that, you know, you doing this work has actually made a, a massive difference in, in what we know. Um, I, I wanted to uh, ask you about the grant that you got from the Pulitzer Center, as I mentioned in my introduction to you. We don't know how many people die in, in, in jails in the state. 
And the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting has given you a grant to actually build a list. And it's just even weird for me to say that. Um, and, and Brittany, I wanted to kind of ask you about this. I know in conversations that we've had, um, you talk about what the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting normally funds. Um, and I think it gives us an indication of the situation that we're in. Yeah, um, they usually fund uh, like war torn countries or people without water or, you know, like the, the sort of uncovering um, places outside of the United States. Um, and they have decided to fund this project in our backyard. Again, I can't emphasize enough that this is our local communities. Like these are people that you pass on the street. This is not uh, some foreign place. This isn't a Netflix documentary of somewhere that you can watch and be like, that'll never happen to me. It could happen to you. If you get popped with a DUI, you could die in your local jail. Wow. You know, if you it, like if if George Floyd had crossed the threshold of his jail, we would have never known what happened to him. We would have never gotten his medical records. His autopsy probably would. We wouldn't know his name. Um, but they were um, really struck by the death rate at the Allegheny County Jail. They were struck that a small um, nonprofit like Pinge or the Pittsburgh Institute for Nonprofit Journalism um, was reporting on something like this and then changing the media landscape, you know, and it feels weird to like toot my own horn in this regard. But before I started reporting on these deaths, it was, you know, the Post-Gazette would have a two or three sentence uh, story about someone who died and nobody asked any more questions. And now everyone knows that we've had 19 men die since 2020. And that's because of my reporting. Um, I will say that Josh and I have also been meeting with a collective who are tracking deaths across the country. So there's folks in Louisiana doing this work. There's folks in Texas doing this work. We aren't the only ones. Um, and some of those discussions are, since we've been looking, they've become even more opaque in some ways. Mm. Uh, we haven't we haven't had a death wow. like the jail death rate was pretty consistent. And then after a lot of my reporting, it kind of fell off, but their staffing crisis has continued. So that that a little bit alarms me. I, I'm wondering what they're doing to avoid that reporting. Our last death in 2022 was in August. And then we didn't have a death until like late spring of 2023, which is like unusual. Like we went through all winter without any deaths, which which hasn't happened in like a couple years. So so I'm a little bit. I mean, best case scenario, that's true, right? Worst case scenario, we're all looking and they're finding out ways to release people to avoid having mm -hmm. them on their books. So who knows? And, and and again, if we could just have a conversation, we could talk about that. So yes, there's more scrutiny. Yes, there's more reporting. Yes, there's more conversation. Yes, there's tons of people going to jail over site board meetings and tweeting about it. There's a Twitter storm every yeah. uh, Thursday. Every month. Or yeah, or every, every week, month. I mean. Local yeah. Twitter blows up with like Gen Z kids pissed off about their local jail. Mm. Like my work here is done. You know, like yeah. I, I have gotten the community to go to a local jail oversight board meeting. Like, but, but at the same time with that scrutiny, I feel a little bit has come um, there. It's resulted in a little bit more um, 
I feel the screen going up and I, in some ways, unfortunately, I don't know. Maybe that's a little cynical, but. Do you know, you know, applaud to you just because it's important to celebrate this, this work, this advocacy, um, because, you know, it's the work of Ida B. Wells, right? So mm-hmm. this is, this is work that changes people's lives. It's work that saves people's lives. And a lot of people don't realize mm-hmm. that mortality work dealing in, data collection surrounding the uh, death leads to improved conditions for the living, right? And so it's truly a public health issue. It's an epidemic across the country. And in epidemics, the first thing you want to do is gain data surrounding those deaths. That's the first thing you want to do. COVID showed us how quickly we can gather data from an unknown reason of death, right? HIV showed us that before. Uh, it's several examples of how individuals can, I mean, how um, data can lead to life-saving measures. And so some of the gaps that you talked about, I think can be filled by the public health infrastructure. I think that you know, asking jails to report their deaths is, you know, okay, let's do that. Let's continue to do that. But what about asking the death certificate to report on every single death in custody? So that's a question for you. You know, what what do you think about what we're proffering as a partial solution um, at least to the data collection problem, maybe not to the death problem, because that's going to require interventions and preventions, but to the data collection problem that every death certificate that's signed in Pennsylvania, in every state across the country, uh, a checkbox that says death in custody, yes or no, with a clear definition of what a death in custody is. So when those emergency room physicians or those ICU physicians they're getting a death that has come from a jail or prison. They know that that is considered by definition a death in custody, whether the jail has taken them off their books or not. That yeah. that objective physician uh, or coroner or medical examiner who's responsible for signing a death certificate simply checks the box, and then that data is made available um, to to the lay public. It's made available to the Centers for Disease Control. It's made available to the state and local public health authorities um, and so on. So thoughts about that. Um, Maybe go with Josh first um, and then Brittany. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a a great idea. Um, To to your point with the data and, and with COVID, I mean, we... What we count kind of shows what we care about. The fact that we are not, the fact that we're not even counting the people who die in our jails or die in custody just shows you how little as a society, how much emphasis we placed on those deaths. We, we don't even at this point want to get a basic count. It's, it's requiring journalists, it's requiring other people to, academics, to try to count the number of people who die in our jails. Like that, that should be a very basic function of our government if if nothing else we should be knowing how many people die how many people are dying as a result of of state or county custody or just being in custody so i mean i think anything that that provides that uh 
that level of counting and that, that we can at least start from there, that, that we know how many people are dying. We know that they're, that they're dying in custody. I think the, I think the checkbox is a, it's a good way of, of doing it. it it's uh, I think a very interesting way of doing it because it, it does, it creates a very low burden for reporting. Um, you just have to, to check the box and, and making sure that people understand what counts as a death and, and ideally having the, that multi-layer of, oversight where right now we are kind of relying on if it's the the coroner you know it's the coroner who's an elected official who is is potentially friends with the the, the warden and the commissioner and you know you, you don't have those levels of accountability that we really should at this point um so something where there's those multiple levels where the the er position who who you know is is the one who oversees that the, the, the person died and, and fills out that that death certificate and everything that that would be a huge help as well i mean again i think we 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 count what we care about and we should care about knowing at bare minimum how many people are dying as a result of, of being in custody Brittany, you want to add anything yeah this is kind of just a an example of of just people being able to have the opportunity to compare notes and giving people the opportunity to share information we had um a man die in the allegheny county jail named marty busick he was on an acute suicide pod he struggled with mental illness um he was according to his wife off his medications he had presented at a um, hospital with slit wrists. I mean, he was in crisis, like deep crisis. He was um, arrested because he hit a nurse at um, w- while showing up at a hospital to get treatment. You know, he was saying, I'm actively suicidal. And he hit a nurse, so they arrested him, put him in the jail. Um, I started to get phone calls from incarcerated persons saying he choked himself to death intentionally right? This was a suicide. This was on the suicide pod. They weren't watching him. Um, And after the medical examiner uh, conducted his autopsy, the release that they gave the public was that it was accidental. Mm -hmm. What they told the family was that it was undetermined. So then I went to the county and I said, look, there's a discrepancy here in these two documents. And then the county went and corrected it to undetermined. So undetermined means that you have a case, you know, like you can challenge this. This might have been a suicide. So fast forward a couple years. Now we're doing this database. There is another choking by suicide in our database that we have right now. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't know that that was something that you could even come to a determination with, you know, so you have two different medical examiners, maybe some very similar situations, making a different kind of determination. And now those families could talk to each other, right? Those lawyers could talk to each other. You're starting to get a narrative of how does someone do this? What are the similarities in these cases? You know, like that's just like a basic thing that's happening just because Josh and I started to look and started to remember and started to make connections with other people. Um, I, I know that's like a really inside baseball kind of example, but it's something really tangible to me. I mean, I had like a light bulb go off when I saw that and, you know, people make mistakes. People are like even coroners, even medical examiners, we all should be scrutinized as journalists. We have to fact check 
what I put out ends up in the public, if I misreport somebody something, you better believe someone's going to come and tell me and correct it and ask me, how did you make that determination? But we can't do that for people that are like determining how someone died. And then we're not getting any other information. It's just like, why are you the exception to the rule? Why does everyone else get accountability and, and get like insight to your job except for you know these people? I don't know. Um, but I think I think the families on on a very basic level just deserve um, to know about other families. Like if we yeah. go outside of like the public health thing, if your son or brother or sister or wife dies in custody and there's someone with a similar case, you deserve absolutely 100% to know about that other case. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I piggyback on that real quick? Sorry. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I, I think any, we don't, I mean, we have, we have state to state massive differences in how this stuff gets reported. I mean, I know mm -hmm. Texas, you, you have some oversight from the AG where these things, things are supposed to be reported. But even in Pennsylvania, there's just massive discrepancies from county to county to, to how things get reported. Like just as just an example, I'm not arguing that, that we know every death in Philadelphia, but I mean, Philadelphia, there, there's a relatively good infrastructure where they seem to re be reporting most, if not all deaths. I know there was a death a, a year or two ago where a man was just released and, and as he was walking out of the jail, he was shot and killed. That was reported in their, their deaths in custody uh, information. So like they're, they're doing those. I. Uh, and and we we know in Philadelphia we at least have a good we have a general count of, of how many people are dying in the jails. We talk about Dolphin County. We know that they will report the name when someone dies, but like Ishmael Thompson, who I mean died at the hands of, of guards, his name was re released. There, there was a press release, but because he was released in the hospital, he had his bail modified while in the hospital. He doesn't show up on any official statistics. So you have kind of that in between where they will put the name out there. Then you have Center County where they, they very clearly had at least one person die and they've decided not to report that person and take no credit for that person. The only reason that we know that person died is the mother went to the local newspaper after he died and said, hey, my, my son uh, died by suicide in the jail and, and they, we had a story and we had a name to, to, to go with. And then it ranges the, the, the spectrum them just across the state. So we don't even know. There's no way even within Pennsylvania at this point to know which ones are doing it right, which ones are, are doing it wrong, which ones are the problems, which ones need more oversight. I, because we, we only know it's not, not the greatest analogy, but to, to use the, the, the Donald Rumsfeld, the, 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 we, we have the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. Like There's just stuff that we don't know, and we, it's very, very difficult to even know whether we, we don't know it. Like We don't know what areas <laughs> we, we don't have that, that they're, they're not reporting deaths because if there's no newspaper, if there's no infrastructure for the media to find out in that county or in that local area... I mean, I think that's 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 one of the testaments to, to Brittany. It's it's not that there isn't a media infrastructure in Pittsburgh. Right. The media infrastructure, though, has been hollowed out enough that there were so many other things that 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 the traditional media cared about and only had had a, their scarce resources to cover that it required someone like Brittany to start her own publication to focus on this, this one issue. I mean, that that's. 
kind of similar to what happened with, with Penn Live. I'm the only investigative reporter uh, with Penn Live. They have one position. I'm very thankful that that we have one position. But like, I I care about criminal justice. I care about the jails. I care about that that sort of thing. So that's where my focus goes whenever whenever I had this job. My predecessor cared about other issues, and that's that's not a bad thing. Like every beat should have a reporter trying to do this work. Um, the fact that I'm doing jails means I'm not covering education. It means I'm not covering this right. and that. But but if if you don't have that focus on on this issue, and you, and given the the scarce resources that that media landscape has now, like it just it, it just gets hidden and we, we don't know what it is and we don't even know necessarily where to look. Well, people ask me all the time, why, why does Allegheny, why Allegheny County? Why, why is the death rate so high there? Why is it the, you know, the worst jail you never heard of? And I, I have said it's because I'm here. Like if I lived in, I don't know, York, maybe York would have the highest death rate in the state. You know, if there was a Brittany Haler at every county jail, I think you would see an increase of deaths. You would have to, I don't know if what is happening here is actually an outlier. I think I'm just looking is the difference. That's so good. I, mean, I just want you that, to follow me around when I say stuff and like be like, "That's so good." No, yeah, you like that? <laughs> He's your, your hype Listen, man. Look, I, I love, I love it, and and the reason why is because though, you know, it, it 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 creates something that we've known in public health for forever. Mm-hmm. We know in public health forever is when we when we look at something, we'll find it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, it, it is, it is, it is something that we un- have understood for a long time and we need to exact these principles on death and custody. All that you, all that we're saying here is that is we need to be looking. And we, unfortunately the four of us can't cover every County in the country. We can't. So we need an infrastructure that that counts and is reliable and that infrastructure is not just in the criminal justice system it's not just in the public health system it is a combination Mm -hmm. of all of it including active journalism uh, active advocacy and activism so tell us a a little bit you know we've talked uh, now nearly an hour uh, uh, about this work Uh, what does it look like when all the data is collected, what do we do now? We've now we've solved the data collection issue. What 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 happens next in in this utopic society where we're we're accurate surrounding those that have died in the custody of our criminal legal system from the pre-arrest phase uh, in the George Floyd's of the world to um, the Ishmael Thompson's. Uh, of of the world um what what are we what are we what are we doing next after the data is collected yeah i mean i i i think uh collecting the data is, is key but putting that data into action uh is probably more important than than just having it um i mean i i think it's got to be it's got to be used in, in a way that helps prevent some of these deaths or helps prevent is I, I, I always say 
I, I would love that there, there's no deaths ever in custody, like truly no deaths in custody, not we released the person and, and he just wasn't, we, we, we dragged him out of the, the, the jail so he wasn't in, in custody. I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you ever get there, just, just given the, the population that, that goes in and out of our jails and in and our systems, we're certainly not going to eliminate deaths in, in prisons because of our, unless we change our policies that, that we don't have people serving life without parole. We don't have it. it you're just, there's, there's going to be deaths. It's, it's eliminating as many of the preventable deaths as possible. And, and hopefully I think as, as kind of Brittany was, was saying with, you know, the, the, the choking deaths, you have counties that maybe have one or two deaths a year. If that, um, it's, it's very hard to pick up on what did we do right or wrong in an individual situation when it's so it's that infrequent. I mean, even you're talking, you're talking Allegheny County, 19 deaths since 2020. That's, I'm sure they can, they are going to have an easier time finding patterns of where we made mistakes, but not, it, it's still going to be difficult. Cause that, that, that's not, that's not a ton of data points to try to try to pick out. But if we now have, you know, 60 deaths this year in Pennsylvania, 60 deaths, deaths the year before we, we have now this large sample size where we can start to see, you know, this happened, this person was able to die by suicide because this was happening or we weren't doing proper checks on this person or, you know, this happened. We used we used a spit hood on the person and and pepper spray and they died. And this happened now four or five different times. Like we can change our policies. We can we can start to see the patterns of where our policies aren't working, where are the things that we need to change to to eliminate these preventable deaths are and that that only comes from being able to see the big picture that that the being able to look across jurisdictions to see what's happening and how did it happen not just that this person died but what are the circumstances that led up to their death that we can look at and are there a pattern here that we can it intervene so that this pattern doesn't continue for someone else we also, I mean, we're coming out of an incredibly, incredibly traumatic global event. <laughs> and if you were incarcerated during that global event, you likely spent 24 hours in your cell for God knows how much time, right? And I mean, and if you look at all the data sets that you might see the same thing, but there are so many suicides. It is so, I mean, that is by far the most reported death that we have, but again, it might be just because they can't get around reporting that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, Oh, we have to report the suicide. We're going to report the suicide. But if you look at the, like, as just like emotionally speaking, as I'm going through these names, it's hanging, 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 hanging. Like it. it and that's, that's, I, it's an epidemic. I, we're, we're housing people who are mentally ill and they're killing, they're, they're completing suicide while they're trying to get rehabilitated. So we're failing. We are failing these people. We, the worst conclusion to incarceration is happening over and over and over again. It's wow. totally preventable and it's absolutely linked to mental health. Like mm -hmm. how, how is that not? a major concern of everybody. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's happening in your backyard. It is happening down the street from you. It's not at some institution off in the woods. Like it is, you drive by it every day, probably if you're in a metropolitan area, mm -hmm. you know? No, I mean, I think the only point that, that, that I didn't hit that, that if there's any way of just kind of making the point, um, 
we're, we're counting the deaths, but the deaths are only a small part. They're, they're just one metric. Um, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That for, for every death that we get reported, there's an untold number of people yep. who are irreparably harmed by our incarceration. The number of times I, I've heard from COs and, and mental health staff in jails of like, you just don't know the near misses that, that we had is, is astonishing. So it, we're, we're covering deaths and, and we are tracking deaths in part because that's the thing where we have the metrics on or we have better metrics on. But like it's it's one indicator of just all the other things that happen in the jail. And the, there are just an untold number of people who come out of our jails irreparably harmed for the same reasons that that, that people die. I think we see that. I think that's one of the one of the reasons that that we want that uh, checkbox is that we can learn so much from each of these deaths, and we can learn from a public health perspective, from a medical perspective, from a jail practice perspective, uh, from a journalistic perspective. That you know you can go in and you can talk to people about well, what's the story of this person? What happened to them before? Uh, they arrived. And so deaths are really signal events. They're, they're the, um, you know, you, I, I know, Josh, in, in previous conversations, we've talked about them being the tip of the iceberg. Um, That's right. But they're, they're really just, uh, they're the most extreme events that are easier to detect. Uh, outside the the uh, facility than the near misses, and so that's why I think it's so important to focus on these deaths. Maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, um, you know, when you're talking about sixty or seventy deaths that we know of a year in Pennsylvania jails. But as you say, each of those deaths represents a lot of harm, and we can use the deaths to uncover that harm. I think that's a really important point. Yeah, and and you know, we're not just asking for. The checkbox, right? We're asking for fatality review committees, multidisciplinary fatality review committees to be deployed, similar to maternal mortality review uh, in this country, fully funded and supported by the Centers for Disease Control. And in these multidisciplinary reviews, you gain insight into structures that may be present that can be removed for prevention. So we talk about suicides in prisons. It's it's reviewing of those cases that lead to changes like not having fixed air vent grates um, in the ceilings of these jails. Some of these jails are so old that they have the old metal or concrete vents um, that aren't breaking away. And so people can tear a sheet and hang from what can withstand their weight, whereas if they had the breakaway um, greats, then you can't. So these are the types of things that a fatality review committee um, dispersed in every jurisdiction, yeah. particularly at a state level, can get to. So your point is well taken, uh, that we only look at deaths so that we can understand the depth of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah. just have the question of why are they going to such lengths to avoid reporting? Why, why are they going to the courts and and filing a modified bail uh, under the veil of night hours before someone dies in order to avoid it. Why? I, I, I don't have the answer really, honestly, but that is enough for me to want to know. You know, that that is like, they don't want you to know. Your local government does not want you to know about it. So I want to know about it. You are listening to Official Ignorance, the Death in Custody podcast.
Wow, what a powerful conversation. Uh, I wanted to thank again Josh Vaughn from PenLive, PenLive.com, and Brittany Haler from Pittsburgh Institute for Nonprofit Journalism, PingeNews.org, and University of Pittsburgh uh, for joining us. I just respect what they do so much. I think the thing that really sticks with me out of the conversation is that we count what we care about. That's something that uh, that I see over and over again in the work that I do. It's that weird thing that what we care about, we make visible, and what we don't care about, we render invisible by ignoring it. And this might get a little bit academic, but um, there's this idea of agnotology that we talk a little tiny bit about in the book, um, that you can actually manufacture ignorance by intentionally not looking. And, and that gets to the, the title of this podcast, Official Ignorance. The government actively doesn't want us to know. The government meaning the local elected leaders in this case, not people far off in Washington, D.C. or wherever. These are literally the people who live down the street from me, who eat at the same restaurants, who shop at Giant Eagle with me. They will go to great lengths to not let us know what's being done in our name, what we are doing. And I thought that that was the other really powerful thing that especially at the local level, this is not some you know evil bureaucrat or evil judge or evil uh, law enforcement agency. This is us. We're doing this and we have an obligation to know. Absolutely. They were fantastic and your words really don't even need to be followed. At the end of the day, our listeners are understanding that it's not just you know, two guys that have made a decision to to write a book, but there are innumerable amount of people that think this is important to understand how the most vulnerable in our community may be treated, how the most vulnerable in our community may die from diseases or injuries that are preventable. And we don't have a sufficient idea of those occurrences. And now our listeners are empowered. You're empowered to go to your local county elected officials, your local jails, your state prisons, and ask, how are people dying? What are people dying from in our jails and prisons? And hold people accountable. You now are empowered with information to understand that you're not going to be alone in that. Wherever you are in the country, you need to be clear that it's up to us to start gathering this data and force this data collection so that we can start developing the prevention constructs that are needed, the interventions that are needed to save lives so that our mothers and our fathers and our cousins and our brothers and our sisters and don't have to live with the death of their loved one and then don't have the answers that they're looking for because their loved one was on their deathbed, brought into an emergency department, into a hospital, and then released from jail or prison, released through a, a waving of a wand through a judge. And now you don't have the information of what has led to their, to their death. So, um, Jay, thank you for your work. Thank you for your connection in your community in a way that allows for this level of expertise to be brought to the national consciousness. 
um, it says it just as much about you and your work and your diligence to do the work and understand the work um, as it does the two that we just heard from. So thank you for that. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate it.